Turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. Nehemiah, chapter 1. Hannah had a great burden, and she began to lift up her prayer to God for a son. And uh, she challenged Eli with that because he thought she was drunk. Uh, but she also changed her own life because God answered her prayer and gave her a son. And he changed, she changed the country uh, as she prayed for Samuel because God, in giving Samuel, turned the people of Israel back to himself. Uh, Nehemiah is one of these types of individuals. God has put him here for a purpose to turn the hearts of people back to the Lord and to begin a process of renewal and restoration. Uh, we need God's renewal, don't we? We need it personally. We need it in our families. We need it in our church. We need it in our country in a big way. Uh, and God has put us as his people as the answer uh, to the problem of spiritual renewal, needing spiritual renewal. And so um, in Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, he says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Uh, so this need for renewal is just every bit as strong today as it was in Nehemiah's day. Uh, Nehemiah is actually cupbearer to the king. We find that at the end of the first chapter here. Um, God has put him strategically in a place of influence so that when the messengers from the nation of Judah come and begin to talk to Nehemiah, he is in a position to have some influence, to get some things done, and to get some things changed. And uh, God has strategically put him where he is at the time he's there for the purpose that God has for him to fulfill. Uh, I'm grateful for that, uh, grateful that God does that in our lives, that he has a purpose, and he has us in the exact time that we are living for uh, a reason and for his purpose to be fulfilled. So Nehemiah is here, and then he begins to, when he hears about the situation, he becomes very burdened, and he begins to pour out his heart to God. And, and to pray, and he does so with great faith, and he does so based upon God's Word. And we find here several foundations for believing prayer. And so I've changed my, my title and my message this afternoon. God led me a little different direction. But the title of my message is The Foundations for Believing Prayer. Someone once said, do you believe in prayer, or do you pray believing? The Bible teaches that we are to pray in faith. And Nehemiah gives us some great guidelines, the foundations for believing prayer that could truly make a difference. Nehemiah was a man of action, but he started at the place of prayer. And uh, most scholars believed he was praying for about four months before he ever talked to the king. So uh, great uh, preparation has gone in here. So the foundations for believing prayer. Look with me at uh, verse 1 
The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress of the city of Susa, Hanani, uh, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, Lord, the God of heavens, uh, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keeps his commands, uh, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you today. And uh, that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins that we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully obey my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You have redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At that time, I was the king's cupbearer. So the foundations for believing prayer, what are they? Well, first of all, we see the greatness of God. The greatness of God. If you look in verse 5, he said, uh, Lord... The God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God, or the great and feared God is one way you could translate that. Uh, Nehemiah looks to heaven, to the greatness of God as a foundation for his faith. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. There's a lot out there that you and I can't solve. There's a lot of things that are beyond us, but there's nothing that's beyond God. And as we call upon his name in prayer, the very omnipotent power of God can be released into whatever circumstance it may be, whether it's in your family, whether it's in this church, whether it's in this country, the omnipotent power of a sovereign God can be applied to the situation to bring about true and lasting change. Nehemiah faced a lot of opposition later on. But God was able to carry him through every circumstance he faced because of his great power. What a God we serve. He tells the oceans how far they can go. You remember when uh, they made, uh, the, the scripture says they were, they were warring with the Amalekites and Joshua was the general. And uh, God made the sun stand still. Now, uh, I've, heard, I've heard messages preached about that, if you look at the time and so forth, that that part of, of that time where the sun stood still uh, can be figured into the history of the universe. And uh, I'm not going to preach that message, but, but it is a, a fascinating thing to think about that God 
is in control of all the powers of heaven. We, the billions upon billions of galaxies that are in the universe. And he controls each one and knows all the billions of stars in each one by name. This is the God that we serve. And this is a foundation for our faith. Listen, I can have weak faith in a powerful God and great things can happen. Did you know it's not so much dependent upon your faith, although it is a good thing to have great faith. Uh, God responds to great faith. But if you have even a little faith in an omnipotent God, he is still able to work and move because it's about his power. That's the foundation for our faith. I don't trust in my faith. I trust in an all-powerful, mighty, sovereign God who is able to do all things. And so that is a foundation. And one of the things that uh, I like to do sometimes when my faith is struggling is to read passages. One of my favorites is Isaiah 40 that talk about the greatness of God. And it somehow it just brings things into perspective and it helps kind of reboot my faith and helps me trust uh, once more and call upon the name of the Lord uh, with confidence. So the foundations for believing prayer, what are they? First of all, the greatness of God. Secondly, second foundation is the goodness of God. If you look at the second part of verse 5, it says, Who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him. Uh, now, they've kind of combined this in the English translation, who keeps his covenant and hesed. The Hebrew word hesed is here. Uh, this is speaking of God's covenant faithfulness. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. Um, it, it, there's a number of translations for it, but it has the idea of God's supreme faithfulness and goodness to his people. Uh, and it is tied often to the covenant that God made with the Israelites. Uh, so his goodness comes to them on the basis of his grace. And that's the same thing under our new covenant, right? God's goodness comes to us not based upon our own worthiness, but based upon the worthiness of Christ. He is worthy in my place. Uh, the scripture says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So I'm clothed with Christ's righteousness and God has, has blessed me and, and been good to me. Not because I deserve it, but because Christ deserved it in my place. And I am clothed with the righteousness of Christ and that is my possession. Uh, so God's goodness and, and we see God's goodness and it's, it's helpful to remember here, who's God being good to? He's, he's being good to the Israelites who have been so not good to him, right? I mean, we're talking about the time of the captivity. This is the time after God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, uh, uh, kings that were righteous, uh, all of these people who tried to call the people back to the Lord and the people have continued and persisted in rebellion and have gotten worse and worse and worse and worse till finally God's patience comes to an end and he sends them into captivity. That's where they are. They're, they're in captivity and there's just a handful of people left uh, in the promised land and possibly some who've come back, but, uh, but there's not many. And it's just a handful of people uh, in the land of Judah 
that are, that are there in their homeland. And so who's God being good to? It's not like God's being good to people who deserve it. God's being good to people at their lowest point. Aren't you glad that God is good and shows mercy when we're at our lowest point? <laughs> Praise God. Uh, his goodness is so great. And, and we see that in the life of Jesus, don't we? Jesus is good to those. Every, every sinner who comes to him broken over their sin, asking for forgiveness, finds it at the feet of Jesus because of his goodness. Uh, how good he is. Now, he'll say, go and sin no more. But in his goodness, he forgives. Uh, I think of the, the woman at the well who, uh, you know, she's got, uh, has had, she's had five husbands. And the one she's living with is not her husband. Now, that's a broken life. She's, she's, um, she is living in sin, and Jesus knows it. But he's kind to her. He's loving to her. And when she begins to question and interact with him, uh, Jesus challenges her. She comes to faith, and she goes against the village. And they come to, many of them come to faith, all because of the goodness of our Savior. That goodness has not changed. It is a foundation for believing prayer. Listen, I pray to God, and I don't come based on my worthiness. Now, I, I want to live a righteous life, but I don't come before God based on, on my own goodness because Scripture says my righteousness is as filthy rags to God. I come trusting in the blood and the sufficient atonement of Jesus Christ in my place. And the veil has been ripped and the way has been made open. And my Savior has gone before me. And I can go boldly to the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done. And I can find consistent goodness before God. Now, one thing I like about the goodness of God as a foundation for prayer is that He knows what is good for us. Right? And if I ask Him for something that I really don't need... That he knows would do me harm. He's got veto power. And I'm glad he does. Because in his goodness, he'll do what's best for me. Not what, I may not have the sense to ask him the right question. Uh, he'll do what's best for me. And so uh, you think about Abraham. Abraham comes to God. And um, God has told him about what he plans to do. And, and the cry of wickedness that's come against Sodom. And um, Abraham's saying, well, Lord, if there's... 50 righteous people, uh, Lord, if there's, if there's 20, if there's 10, uh, there weren't even 10 righteous people in Sodom. But guess what? God in his goodness knew exactly what Abraham was concerned about. And he sent the angel to get Lot and his family out of Sodom. And the angel said, we can do nothing until we get you out of this city. That's the heart of the goodness of God toward his servant, Abraham. And he has the same heart toward us. What a great foundation for believing prayer. So, uh, foundations for believing prayer, what are they? First of all, the greatness of God. Secondly, the goodness of God. Thirdly, the mercy of God. Look at verse 6. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive and hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. He's talking about the national sin of Israel. He says, both I and my father's family have sinned. So he's confessing his family sin. He's confessing his personal sin. 
You see, Nehemiah recognizes that sin is a barrier to the blessing of God. Praise the Lord, we have a promise. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness as his people. Uh, So whenever sin stands as a barrier, it doesn't mean we're unsaved, but it stands as a barrier to prayer. Uh, We can confess that before God, and we know that we'll find mercy. How great is the mercy of God. Where sin abounded, there did grace much more abound. But even the mercy of God to look at all of the sin, all of the motives that we have in our hearts, all of the wrong attitudes, the words that we speak, the things that we fail to do that we should do. God sees it all. He knows it all. And because of his mercy, he forgives it all. And what, a, what an amazing thought, the great mercy of God. And we see it in Israel, right? Uh, I, I th- always think of, of Hosea. You remember the story of Hosea? Uh, God tells Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Sounds like an attractive <laughs> situation. Uh, listen, who wants to do that? But God tells Hosea to do it. Why? Because he says, Hosea, you are going to be an illustration of my love for Israel, and she will be an illustration of Israel's wickedness and unfaithfulness to me. And so Hosea marries her. Um, things go, go okay for a little while, and then she begins to go right back to that old lifestyle. Um, it's, it's kind of amusing. You read uh, Nehemiah is naming the kids, but he knows that those kids don't belong to him. So one of them he names, not my son, not my people. You know, I mean, uh, uh, pretty bad situation. Well, finally, she just leaves him. And, and she goes off, and she's living in these adulterous relationships and uh, is, is living as a prostitute. And finally, she gets so used up that nobody wants her. She's destitute because she has nobody to provide for her needs, so She's going to be sold as a slave so she can at least eat. She gets up on the auction block and she's going to be sold. And God tells Hosea, go buy her back. And Hosea goes and he bids for Gomer, his wife. Receives her back into his home. And blesses her with goodness and mercy. This is the mercy of our God. One song that years ago was written said, I was guilty with nothing to say, and they were coming to take me away. But then there was a voice from heaven that said, let him go. Take me instead. Listen, I want to tell you, that is the gospel. The great mercy of our God. Listen, if it weren't for that mercy, none of us could come to the throne of grace. How could you pray? Uh, you, you might think, well, Nehemiah, how could, could you possibly pray for such a wicked people? They deserve what they get, right? How could you do that? Because he understands this foundation of praying in faith that God is a merciful God. 
and that the mercy of God is so great that there's nothing that can tax it. And so he, with confidence, goes to God in prayer on behalf of the people, and he begins to confess sin and appeal to God for mercy. And guess what? God answers. Listen, uh, God is in the business of saving prodigals, isn't he? <laughs> Whether it's a prodigal nation or a prodigal son, as we've, we've talked about, uh, he delights in doing that. Uh, we need to understand the greatness of God's mercy. Uh, it, you know what's amazing to me? You read the book of Judges, and Judges is just one cycle. It's kind of a discouraging book, really, if you get the full message of it and you really see the overarching message. It's just that things go from bad to worse in a country because they, they just kind of repent on the surface. They don't, they're not really serious about repentance. They keep going right straight back to what they were doing before. It's just a vicious cycle. Finally, the pressure and the, the judgment and the chastening gets so bad, they cry out to the Lord. He sends a deliverer, and then they go through the whole cycle again. And uh, you're thinking, what's going what's gonna to happen? But uh, one of the scriptures there in the book of Judges uh, speaks of God's delay. And, and their people are again, they've gone through the cycle again and again and again. They're crying out to God. And the scripture says, when God, when God could stand it no longer, he provided a deliverer. That's the mercy of God. Listen, if God can show mercy to Israel during the time of the Judges, if he can show mercy to Israel during the time of Nehemiah when they're in captivity, he can show mercy to us. He can show mercy to this country. Listen, Jonah did not want to see Nineveh saved or spared. He wanted to see him burn. He got up there for the light show. Uh, he, he wanted to see it happen. He was eager. He, he, he was filled with animosity, perhaps even hatred, toward the people of Nineveh. He preached the shortest sermon ever recorded. <laughs> and uh, prob probably there was more to it than that. It's probably just a summary. But the people of Nineveh, though they were extremely wicked, extremely violent. I mean, history describes their practices. They humble themselves and they repent. And God shows them mercy. Listen, if God can show mercy to Nineveh, he can show mercy to us. Listen, believe this foundation of believing prayer, the mercy of God. So the foundations for believing prayer, what are they? We see the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the promises of God. Oh, what a great foundation for believing prayer. Nehemiah quotes the Bible to God. He says, Lord, do you remember what you wrote in the book? He didn't say it exactly this way. I'm kind of summarizing. But he says, you remember what you wrote in the book of Deuteronomy? You told us that we were going to go astray. You said that we were going to rebel against you. And you said that it would reach a point that you would send us into captivity. But you also said that if we would turn to you, if we would repent, that you would show us mercy. And if, even if we're at the farthest place from the land of Israel, you would gather us back. So, Lord, that's what I'm asking you to do. 
That's your promise that you've made. I'm calling to you. Just as you told us to call to you. And I'm trusting you to answer. You see, here's a conditional promise. If if you will turn to me, if you will call on me. And see, they wouldn't even call him. They were so full of rebellion, they wouldn't even pray. They'd pray to any and other, every other God uh, when they went into captivity. They would not call on God. So Nehemiah says, listen, you said when we called on you in captivity, you'd bring us back. So I'm holding you to your word, Lord. <laughs> and I'm praying that you'll bring us back. And that is indeed what God did. He took Nehemiah along with others who came back from captivity. Ezra's already there with his, with his crew. He's bringing Nehemiah and his crew. And uh, God fulfills that request. Um, he speaks of, of the fact that um, God will keep his gracious covenant, verse 5, with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then he says, Lord, verse 11, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servant. So Nehemiah says, I think there's other people who feel the same way I do, who delight to fear your name. My translation says revere. I like the word fear. Delights to fear your name. You see, they fulfilled the conditions of the promise. And because they fulfilled the conditions, see, you've got different kinds of promises. You have some unconditional promises. You just take those to the bank. There's no condition attached to them. Uh, but then there's also conditional promises. And in this case, the condition was genuine repentance and calling upon the name of the Lord. Both of those things happened in the lives of a certain group of people, a small group of people possibly, but just a small group of people was enough. How many were in the original group of Jesus' closest disciples? Just 12 men, right? One of them betrayed Jesus, had to be replaced, but God used those 12 men and a handful of others to turn the world upside down. God doesn't need many. <laughs> he just needs a few who will take him at his word. Here's another conditional promise. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I love that. <laughs> if you fulfill the condition, you can take it to the bank. Confess him with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And on the authority of God's word, he will keep his promise. That's a foundation of believing prayer. To pray the promises of God. Guess what? I, I was reading the commentary. Uh, and they make mention of the fact that Ezra does the same thing. I read another commentary that says Daniel does the same thing. Hmm. Could God be teaching us a pattern here? God makes promises. We're to take those to the bank and take them seriously and pray based upon the promise of God. So, how trustworthy is God? How, how often does he keep his promises? Every single time. Great, great foundation for believing prayer. 
All right. So the foundations for believing prayer, the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the promises of God, the redemption of God. Verse 10. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and your strong hand. Now, Nehemiah is appealing to the fact that God delivered the Israelites when they were in Egypt. Did they deserve to be delivered when they were in Egypt? No. The scripture says that they were idolaters in Egypt. Matter of fact, they, they kind of did that practice in the wilderness. You remember the golden calf? They made the golden calf. In the, in, Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. They're making a golden calf and worshiping idols. Listen, they didn't deserve to be delivered. But they had cried out to God, and God in his mercy had sent Moses to deliver them. And the word used for deliver is redeem. And they were redeemed by the power of God's hand from the land of Egypt. So Nehemiah says, hey, you did it back then, and they weren't your people back then. Now they are your people. You have redeemed them. We're in the same situation we are before. We're in captivity, and we need redemption. And so I'm calling on you, Lord, uh, based on your mercy to redeem your people yet again. And, of course, these Old Testament redemptions look forward to the redemption of Jesus Christ who paid the ultimate price at Calvary to deliver us from sin, the power and the penalty of sin. Um, And his redemption is sufficient. And once you put your faith in Christ, you're his child. And the situation is different. I I love Romans 5. It talks about, it says, if, if we've now been reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more? Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? In other words, I was God's enemy then. And God saved me and reconciled me through the blood of Jesus. How much more, now that I'm his child, will he be for me? That's what Nehemiah is saying. We're your people, Lord. Redeem us like you redeemed us before in your mercy. But listen, the redemption of God is a foundation for believing prayer. Because listen, especially under new covenant situation. The only reason anybody is redeemed is because of the work of Christ. And that work of Christ is completed. Jesus said, it is finished. The work is completed. I've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And I appeal to God based on the righteousness of Christ. And we've, we've talked about that. I won't belabor that. But Jesus paid a price. He paid a price to make me God's child. He paid a price to open up heaven to me in prayer. And because he paid a price, which by the way is what redemption means, to pay a price. Since since God paid a price, the way is open for me to come with confidence to God's prayer, to God's God's throne for prayer. Uh, And it becomes a foundation for believing in prayer. Um. Satan might whisper in your ear, why do you deserve to have your prayer answered? I usually just agree with him. I say, you're right, I don't deserve it. But my Savior, 
is perfect in his righteousness, and he has credited his righteousness to me. Find fault with him if you can, devil. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Listen, I want to tell you something. Our redemption, Jesus has paid the price for us to enter into his throne. We've been sprinkled. You know, Moses, when he, when he was doing the tabernacle, I've been reading that in my quiet time. Uh, some, of, some of y'all are thinking, bless him, Lord. Uh, but I've, been, I've been reading about the, the tabernacle. And the people are being sprinkled. Aaron's being sprinkled. And, and the blood is used to, to sanctify and set apart everything. Nothing in their whole worship system can function without the covering of the blood. And it just shows you the only way that we come into God's presence is through the blood of Christ. And so we, the price has been paid. What is that price? Jesus died in my place. So now instead of having to exercise God's justice against me, God deals with me in grace. And, and Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, present tense, ongoing, peace with God and access into this grace in which we now stand. And that word stand in Greek has the idea of we begin to stand with the result that we forever stand in that grace. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Listen, I stand in the grace of God because of the redemption of my Savior. There's a reason we're going to cast our crowns at Jesus' feet because truly He is worthy. Um, What a foundation for believing prayer. I've been redeemed. I've been made a child of God. Jesus himself has opened up the way into God's presence. Foundations of believing prayer, what are they? The greatness of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the promises of God, and the redemption of God. We have foundations to pray to cause us to have confidence in prayer. Listen, I I believe that as God's people, we need to enter into the heart of Nehemiah. And um, this is not something you can work up. It's not something you can produce by trying to produce it. But it is something we can ask God for. Lord, as I pray, would you give me your burden for America? God, as I pray, would you give me your burden for South Clinton Baptist Church? God, as I pray, would you give me your burden for my kids or for my family? Um, and we, we enter in just as Nehemiah, Nehemiah prayed with, with faith, but he also prayed with fervency. He prayed with a burden. He fasted and prayed. He was broken. He was urgent. Because God had given him a burden that he could not shake. And he continued to go before the throne four months of time. To go before the throne of God. And God brought significant change. I see no reason why God can't do it today. But I believe we need to ask God. Lord, give me your heart to pray. Holy Spirit, pray through me. For this country and for this church and for my family and for my personal life. And, um, and I believe God will answer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.